Chicken parm. I have a weird obsession with chicken parm. Like if it's on the menu, it's yeah. very tough for me not to get that. Mm. It's a breaded chicken cutlet with fucking cheese melted on it. It's amazing. This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Prakash. Today we're chugging beer and eating one of our favorites, pizza. It's a great way to start the evening. It's delicious pizza. It's good. Are you going to have another slice? Um, yeah. Are you? Yeah. Go ahead. How Obviously. many is that? How many is that? This is number three, but they, I just want to just for, for our listeners, they're, they're small slices. No, 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 as no, you no. said, do as you said. I didn't say that. <laughs> you did say that. Well, it's not on here. It's not going to make the cut. How, what did you do at the gym yesterday? Just while you're eating that pizza, I want to talk about your workout. <laughs> what did you do yesterday at the gym? I grimaced in pain for 40 minutes and then I left. Yeah. Did you, do, you lifted weights? I lifted weights. What did you do? I, I, got, I got on the bike. You on a bike, dude? Yeah. Be honest. You didn't do more than five minutes on the bike. Ten minutes on the bike. You did ten? Ten minutes. At what resistance? Oh, like negative two, you know. Yeah, I'm like you're like, just yeah. cruising. Yeah, I'm just like I'm just doing <laughs> like, it to do it. It's totally pro forma. Like you stop sweating <laughs> yeah. on the yeah, bike. Exactly. It was relaxation. I was like, oh man, that yeah. lift was hard. I need to get on the bike. And just, yeah, you like read a book, like, took yeah, a nap. Yeah, I was like checking my, you know, podcasts and stuff like that. I've done that bike thing with uh, my girlfriend a bunch, and and she like tries to turn on the resistance, and I'm like, oh why would you bike? It's not supposed to be hard. No. It's like a bike. It's like yeah. you cruise around. Exactly. And she's like, well, you're not doing anything. You're just <laughs> you're just like pedaling. And I'm right. like, yeah, right. It's less That's okay. I mean, it's more than just sitting. I was gonna say it's better than what I'd be doing, yeah. which is lying down. Exactly. Exactly. I'm kind of moving. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking yesterday at this time I was on a bike, low resistance. Right now, yeah. I'm eating pizza and beer. So you You're know, even. it's it's. I mean, that's huge that yeah. I did that yesterday. I agree. <laughs> I pat myself on the back for that. Yeah, and the thing is, like, it doesn't really work like that, right? Like, no, I'll no, work no. out two days a week and be like, dude, I worked out twice this week. I'm gonna have a cheesesteak as an appetizer. <laughs> but like, it doesn't work. Like yeah, that. and then you need like a month of working out. You need to do a anything. month, yeah. and not eating. Yep, it's awful. It's terrible. Uh, but the good thing is, like, the way technology is going, I have no doubt in my mind. In five to ten years from now, when we're real fat. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a pill you take for like a month straight, and you're just skinny. It'll be like a nanotechnology, like a yeah, mind, robot, a tiny robot that's eats just eating fat. you from the inside Definitely. out. Definitely, I can't yeah, wait. I know, I can't I'm, wait. I'm all over it. How much would you pay for that? If I was like a lot, <laughs> a lot, I would pay a thousand dollars a year for that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, a thousand dollars a year for that pill. Like, eat what you want. And the You're robot good. fucking zaps the fat At, in you. Yeah, oh. yeah. Oh, it'd be fantastic. That's the world I want to live I know, in. I know. Hopefully, <laughs> some scientists are listening. They're on this. Yeah. That, yeah. and we're gonna have afros because they <laughs> they cure balding. It's like we're ripped. <laughs> yes. We have horrible eating habits right. and afros. Right. Right. We're gonna look. Which awesome. brings us into our first segment perfectly, right? <laughs> Which is totally, totally. All right, so we are. Going oh, we have a guest. We have a guest. Oh my god, we have a guest. I can't believe that people who have listened to this agree yeah. to come on, because <laughs> it could actually ruin your reputation. I don't think so. Like come I'm on. shocked you still have a job. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, all right, so so you want to set this up because I have yeah. no idea. Okay, so our guest uh, is a woman named Sarah Gilliam who I know from way back when I lived in D.C. Okay. Um, and she's a writer. Um, and she is a person when the refugee crisis emerged out of Syria. Yeah. She was really taken with it, with that issue. And she kind of changed her life as a result of it. So um, we talked to somebody, one of your friends, uh, who joined the army yeah. after 9-11, you know, so there's like this, some big thing happened and he changed his life and so on. 
So, and he joined the army. And so this is kind of like a parallel to that, except it's like humanitarian work in a way, yeah. you know? So, um, so let's call her. Wait, so like yeah. we're bringing people on. This is the second guest we have that's like, hey, something in the world happened, really touched me. So I'm like, a re- I did something amazing. Right. What have we done? Yeah. We're giving them the platform to tell their yeah, stories, that's Tony. True. That's true. To like our 10 <laughs> listeners. Yes. We, come on. My mom podcast. needs to hear yeah. this, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give her a call. Okay, let's do it. I cannot wait to ask her what the hell she's thinking. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hello. Hello. Hey, Sarah, what's up? How are you? I'm so glad to talk to you today. Thanks for doing it. Hi, Sarah. I am super excited to be here. Hello, how's it going? Fantastic. That's that's Tony. Um, I know. I know Hi, you're. I, I know you're an avid listener, so you know who Tony is. I'm familiar with Tony. Yes. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice, nice. By the way, we're getting those T-shirts made up. I'm familiar with Tony T-shirts. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's good. You can political season. You'll have one more thing you can be Absolutely. marketing out there to people who want their t-shirts right now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, Sarah and I, we met in DC, right? Um, yeah. through a mutual friend. And so I, the reason I wanted you to come on, um, is that I was just blown away by, uh, your story basically. And probably the many stories that you have, um, in your head. Um, so what I wanted to ask you about is that, so if you could just say a couple things about why you did and are doing what you're doing. So that's like a lot. So just to sort of explain (laughs) your situation. You bet. Um, by the way, I think it was almost 20 years ago that we met, which is really scary. Isn't that terrifying? I was doing the math, you know, or high teens at least. So that dates us a little bit on it. Wow. (laughs) Well, you should see how fat Amit's gotten. I know. 20 years has not been good to this man. You see the same here. You see the same. I don't have my my felt 22-year-old figure anymore. Um, But our minds have grown. Nebraska babies, yeah. Um, Okay, so basically last September is when that photo was taken of Ilan Curdy, the little boy dead on a beach of a Greek island. And I think that photo was really... um, it just had a really unique impact on people like me, people who follow politics, who care about global issues, but are basically leading their middle-class lives and have kids or have jobs or have grad school or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was something so startling and devastating about that particular photo. And at that time, my son was pretty close in sort of size and shape to Ilan. And so... I just kept coming back to that photo and just comparing his little calves to my son's calves and the clothes he was wearing to to what my son wore. It just felt extraordinarily personal. And so it kind of jolted me into activism in a way that uh, nothing else had to that point, even though I had definitely been following the situation in Syria and I was interested in the refugee journey at that time. That photo made me kind of realize, okay, I have to do something. But the term that I love, someone else coined it, I can't take credit, is slacktivism. And slacktivism is that idea of sharing articles on Facebook and sending outraged tweets and um, kind of using social media to espouse your beliefs but not necessarily doing much about them. And I feel like I've been... Me and Tony are pros at that. 
<laughs> yeah. So, well, we all are. We all are. That's kind of the way our culture is set up right now. So I was, I was sort of jolted out of my slacktivism and decided to do something. Um, the first thing that I did was I found this organization called Carry the Future, which was formed that month. I mean, it, it, it really sprang up uh, as a result of that photo as well. It was a young mom in California that decided, I'm going to collect baby carriers because at that time the Balkan migration route was open and these refugees who were arriving in Greece, if they'd made it safely, were um, seeking asylum in Western Europe and were traveling about a 1,000 miles. And so she thought, hey, let's collect used and gently used baby carriers in the U.S., send them over with volunteers to Greece, fit them on, um, you know, primarily Syrian, but also a lot of Afghan and Iraqi moms and dads and help make this journey a little bit easier for them. So that's how I got involved. I thought, wow, what a great, tangible, smart idea. And a group of other women um, in Lincoln were also interested, Lincoln, Nebraska, where I live. And so we kicked off a little campaign here. We worked with baby boutiques and um, a lactation center to collect carriers. And we collected about 250 carriers here in Nebraska, many of which I then took to Greece in January. So that was how, this is a really long answer, but that's how I ended up in Greece as sort of a middle-aged, straight-up soccer mom from Nebraska <laughs> doing humanitarian relief work. Um, and I, I've been twice now in 2016, and I've also joined the board of Curate the Future, and we're a, we're a founding board and a working board, so that's a really cool role because um, I get to have a voice in shaping the direction that this nonprofit is taking and um, we're running very lean. We're very responsive to needs on the ground. And so even though, again, I'm living sort of in the central part of the U.S. and I have young children that kind of inhibit my ability to just hop on a plane and do um, aid work, I really do feel like I can stay up to speed on these issues and I can have a hand in providing support to the refugee communities. Wow. That's that's amazing. Um, did So for this nonprofit that when you started, did you just start kind of inching in like, I'm going to contribute some money and then maybe go to and help sort of organize the collection? Like, how does it come to the point where like you see a photo and then you're in Greece mm -hmm. a few months later? <laughs> okay. Well, people who know me know that I'm kind of an all in sort of girl. Um, you know, like we have, three giant rescue dogs in our house because I'm just not content with one rescue dog. And I'm just sort of <laughs> like a, like live life to the fullest kind of person in general. And I also, I know this sounds ridiculous. I've said this a couple of times before when I've been talking about how I became involved. I own how woo woo this sounds. And this is very counter to the way I normally think, but I, um, I was so frustrated by American political rhetoric around this situation and about around resettling refugees. And our governor here in Nebraska is extraordinarily conservative, and he was in that early chorus of voices, um, I think possibly started off by Governor Pence, um, saying, no Syrian refugees in our state. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time that I was feeling desperate to help in some way, I was also recognizing that I may never have that chance in my state. So actually, very, very early on, I submitted an application to go on what we call distribution trips to Greece. And these are trips that last 10 days to two weeks. And um, we take volunteers. And that's something really unique about Carry the Future is that it's basically the only group or one of just a handful of groups that takes short-term volunteers. You don't have to be making a six-month or a two-year commitment like you would with Save the Children or 
Mercy Corps or something like that, you can go in for a short stint um, and still really have an impact. And so, and that first trip that I went, at that time, all that Carry the Future was doing was baby carrier distribution. We had a very specific mandate. We were in Athens at the Port of Piraeus, and basically all of the ferries came coming from the Greek islands, like Kos or Lesbos, come through the Port of Piraeus. And in January and February of this year, more than 80,000 refugees came through that port. Um, 80,000 people literally made that journey on those inflatable Zodiac drafts from Turkey to Greece. And so we happened, I happened to be there at basically the most intensive time of um, refugee transport through Athens. And so we met ferries, I mean, honestly, about 20 hours a day. They'd come in at 1 a.m. and then again at 4.30 a.m. We basically didn't sleep. Um, we were at the port wearing baby carriers around our necks and our, our chests and our waist, and we would approach people anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 um, people would come off of a given ferry. And we got really good at sort of baby spotting and toddler spotting. <laughs> and you would just approach people and use sign language and real basic Arabic to say, hey, this is free, this is a carrier, let me show you how this will help. And um, people, once they figured out what we were offering we really never got a no. And I think at that point already in their journey, they were carrying all their belongings in plastic garbage bags. If it was a family, even of just two children, that meant each parent was trying to carry a child as well as all of their belongings. And so the, um, the utility and the convenience of those, those carriers was pretty readily apparent to these families. Um, and then when I went back, so then March 20th is when the EU Turkey deal was struck which closed down effectively the Balkan migration route and said, okay, we're going to interdict anyone trying to make that journey across the Aegean from Turkey, and we're going to send people back to Turkey, and we're going to keep people here sort of in stasis in Greece until we can formally resettle them. And so that was March. I went back in early April, and things had totally changed. I went back leading a team, and I had been sort of prepared to teach a team how to track ferries and meet ferries at the port, and instead... We rented a nine-passenger cargo van and took aid and distributed aid to refugee camps around the country. So then I had a very different um, experience of the refugee situation, looking at people living in these kind of squalid camps versus being on the road to Germany or Austria or someplace else where they could resettle in safety. How do you spot all of the terrorists hiding (laughs) among the refugees, because that's a big talking point here, is that with all of these refugees, the 80,000, you know, what, 40,000 must be there because they want to get here to blow us up. Or at least are sympathetic to that view. Yes. So how do you spot that? They get baby carriages? (laughs) They very strategically place a bag of Skittles in their (laughs) left breast. Oh, my God. That's the main way. But if they've eaten those Skittles because they haven't eaten for several days and they're really hungry, you then know. of course it's like much that. trickier. But then, like, yeah, because Amit and I would be terrorists because I'd eat the Skittles in two seconds. Even <laughs> yeah, if my, husband, my husband would be languishing in a jail. Yeah, absolutely. He, he runs on Skittles. So um, when you talk to some of these people, I mean, the ones I guess you can communicate with or uh, right. through a translator – what do they think of us? You know, I mean, like a, a lot of what's going on over there is obviously the Assad regime is disgusting, mm-hmm. but we haven't necessarily right. been 
um, responsible about the way we just bomb places. Um, so I can imagine that there's got to be some sort of uh, um, dislike towards our country. At yeah, the you'd mentioned that it's not just Syrians, but also Iraqis and Afghanis, right? Yeah. So, right. It's like- so like, do they look at us as the great liberators or... <laughs> <laughs> like what is the what is the feeling you get from some of the people you talk to? You know, unequivocally I heard positive grateful messages. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people that feel a lot of animosity toward the US, but either because I didn't run into them or because of language barriers, I didn't hear it. I was much more likely to encounter that that attitude that you often get when you're traveling, you know, in developing countries and you're maybe an American in a place that doesn't have a lot of tourists and you sort of have kids saying, America, number one, and yeah. America, there, there's still this sort of golden sheen on America, which far be it for me to understand why. <laughs> but, um, but the, you know, the strongest reaction we got was, you're here for us. Right. And in a, a big way that I would um, try to create entree with a family was without a picture of my children and show them that we had this, this commonality of I'm a mother too. And look at my boys and here's what they look like. And then I, I get going with their children and getting to know their children. And, um, people were just shocked that Americans had taken time away from their family and flown to help them. And so I, I never once encountered any kind of anti-American sentiment. And in fact, I, I try not to sort of traffic in, uh, massive generalizations about cultural groups, but I really feel comfortable saying that, first of all, Syrian dads are the most effusive, affectionate, adorable dads as a group I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, Syrian dads love their babies. There were a lot of young single men, say, between age 22 and 28 or 30 traveling, and as a group, they were solicitous, they were thoughtful, they were super appreciative. A lot of them spoke great English because they were coming straight from college campuses in in Syria. Um, most of them hoped to go back one day. Most of them hoped to continue their education wherever they ended up. And it was such a powerful counter to this sort of toxic narrative that we're fed about Muslim men, Syrian men. This, Of course, none of the three of us in this conversation believe all Muslim men are terrorists, but there are a whole lot of Americans who do. And I just felt like I wish I could transport some of those people to the port or to the refugee camps where they could see these sensitive, appreciative, bright, hopeful young men that I was meeting because they in no way resembled sort of the horrible stereotypes that I feel like were inundated with by the media. Yeah. I I had a question about the Greeks. So how did the Greek community sort of take in these people? And I know, I know in, in Europe, there was a big debate going on about whether to call them migrants and refugees, which has different right. legal connotations. And I'm just wondering, I've heard, you know, right. read some press reports about, you know, the sort of heroic actions of the Greeks on the island of Lesbos and, um, and in certain other pockets. But I'm just wondering, in general, was there a sort of welcoming atmosphere, or was it sort of guarded, or or, or what? Um, I can't say enough about the role that the Greeks have played. The attitude was almost universally welcoming. Now, of course, this is a country that is facing its own intense economic struggles. And you can see that being there. It's this beautiful European country. There are a lot of homeless people 
there are a lot of elderly people selling their belongings on the street. You can walk through Athens and recognize this is a country with a depressed economy. And so, of course, that's going to affect how people think about suddenly 80,000 people washing into their system requiring support. But with that said, person to person, Greek people were incredible. And when they would find out what we were doing, immediately they would snap into, how, how can I help? And one really, just one very charming example of that was when I was there in April, um, our group decided to throw a baby shower for about 13 pregnant Syrian Kurds who lived in a squat in a little town. And we thought, we're going to take them gift bags with clean new baby clothes and diapers and wipes and just the kinds of things they're going to need in those first few days after they give birth. And so we went by a really nice bakery, and I went in to buy some sweets and cakes to take to the baby shower. And once I told the Greek staff at the bakery what we were doing and who it was for, they all started just filling my shopping bags with extras and saying, this is from us, this is from us. So it's a really, really small example, but but they get it. And I think Greece is a country that historically has... You know, it's been invaded, it's been repeatedly colonized by different groups of migrants, and there's this real sense of this is our responsibility. And almost in spite of their financial struggles and sort of the initial complete lack of support from the rest of Europe, um, it almost I think it almost became a point of pride of, okay, so we're broke and no money is actually showing up here, and Europe kind of feels like we can't handle this, and so... Damn it, we're gonna we're gonna rise to the occasion, and I saw that everywhere. One other one other really cool thing that happened was we visited a really small, very high morale refugee camp in a beautiful mountainous area about five hours north of Athens, and it was just well run. It was a, a pretty area geographically. The people who lived there seemed as content as anyone we'd met in refugee camps. And I later learned that the land that the camp was located on sat right behind a big kind of highway-side Greek restaurant. And the owners of the restaurant had the land and actually offered it to the government and said, we will have a refugee camp here on our family land. And they opened the restaurant to the refugees. So we were there for an afternoon, and over the course of the afternoon, now and then we'd see these groups of refugees kind of popping on up to the restaurant and sitting down to these giant Greek meals. And all of that was completely free, provided by the family that owned the restaurant. So... Lots of just tiny examples, you know, Greek grandmas or out-of-work Greeks showing up at the port to help in any way they could and sort of saying, I'm going to make this, I don't have a job, so I'm going to make this my job, and I'm here as long as I'm needed. So major props to Greek people for this for their role in this situation. Wow. That's, that's, that's awesome. incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had, I had, you know, there's, there's an old um, essay by... Uh, Susan Sontag about photographs and you know she wrote these two books one called on photography and the other one called regarding the pain of others and where she revises her conclusion so in the 70s when she publishes on photography she writes this that when you see these images of human suffering in far-flung places you know you get this sort of initial moment of pain and empathy and so on but because in our modern society we're inundated with these images, we become mm-hmm. sort of inured to them. Um, mm-hmm. And that it has the opposite effect and makes us sort of cold um, and blasé about human suffering. Mm-hmm. And then 30 years later, 
she revised her own argument saying, actually, no, 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 those are humanitarian <laughs> images <laughs> and, and they actually do work, <laughs> right? Uh, Susan, I guess, I guess if anyone could do that, it's Susan Sontag. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it seemed, you know, your story just sort of made me think of that and the, the, your story kind of comes full circle with what, what happened in Syria. I'm thinking about the origins of this sort of Syrian crisis. You know, it's mm-hmm. 2011, it's the beginning of the Arab Spring, and there's peaceful protests, and then there's that picture of that young Syrian boy who was 13 who was mm. beaten to death, right? And then suddenly mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. basically turns into a civil war. So, like, the pictures here are doing a lot. Yeah. You know? It's, well, and I think we're all in this very unprecedented terrain in terms of social media, and, of course, that was a big story with the Arab Spring, and... and bystanders on the ground and activists on the ground tweeting moment to moment what was happening and, and giving access in a way that even very, you know, fearless and intrepid journalists never have been able to. And I think, I mean, I think, I think it's a both-and situation. I mean, I follow so many Syria and refugee-focused pages and groups on Facebook mm-hmm. that there's an element by now where I'm flipping past stuff. Yeah, right. However... Yeah. Some of the recent some of the recent things that have come out. One thing I shared on that you might have seen was um, a white helmet, you know, a volunteer yes. rescuer, cold sobbing after the the ordeal of rescuing a child. Well, Jesus Christ, I watched that about fifteen times in a row, and you know, not to punish myself or force myself to look at something ugly and tragic, but because it it moved me and affected me in a way that all the articles and reports never will. And I think that my experience in Greece on the ground was just sort of the logical next step to that. It's very hard to other people when you're surrounded by them, having conversations with them, learning their stories. And so in as much as it would have been easy to write a check or just have a baby carrier donation, once I had that privilege of actually doing a tiny little dose of humanitarian work, I could never look back. And so if photos are the gateway into action and activism, then I feel like doing something and becoming involved, whether it's people working with refugees in their local community or actually going overseas or um, sponsoring a family. I mean, there are so many ways now. It's amazing. There are buddy groups on Facebook where you can become a buddy to a refugee family and support them online from halfway around the world. But I feel like that that is actually kind of looking at technology and what it what it affords us in a situation like this. I feel like that's the next step, actually. That activism inspired by those images is becoming a little bit more commonplace. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. So I know there's something in your local paper that that that. Like you were showcased or something that 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 um, <laughs> I, I saw something about this. I didn't I didn't you read the really article yet. The word <laughs> right, you know yeah. the spotlight on you, Sarah. I, I just pictured yeah. you in like a sparkly dress <laughs> right. and like a baton, yes, yes. a top hat, yes. and tap shoes. <laughs> Sarah made it to Dancing <laughs> with the Stars. Yes, um, I'm making America great again. That's right. Guys. That's, that's right. You are. That you was the headline. Are. I think. Um, yeah. So could you talk? So this this seems like another step in what you're doing. Right. So you went there and then now they're sort of it's like ramifying back to home. Yeah. So when I went in April, I 
took two other women from Nebraska with me in my group. And um, neither were women I knew really well. They weren't super close friends of mine at that time, although they became close friends of mine on that trip. Um, so when we got back to Nebraska, we kind of acknowledged, okay, we all have, you know, two-year-olds and one-year-olds, and we're not going to be able to keep flying to Greece. We're also totally broke at this point. So that's kind of off the table. But we were really fired up by our experience and also pretty devastated by it. I mean, I can I can talk a little more if you want about the conditions in the refugee camps, but that was actually much harder to see than the sea of humanity coming off the ferries at the port. I mean, the situation on the ground is is really squalid and really sad. So what they were and coming so, to was pretty bad. What they, Right, where they were ending up after already that, you know, arduous, expensive, terrifying journey was not a pretty place. And so we just thought it would be really nice to see the other side of this and, you know, help with the resettlement process. And, and Lincoln, where I live, is one of 14 designated refugee resettlement communities in the U.S., just kind of randomly. It means we've got good social services, a good public education system, low cost of living, low unemployment rate, things like that. That's that's kind of what was needed to get that designation. And so we reached out to a local resettlement group, which is run by um, the Lutheran Church, and offered to sponsor an incoming family. And all that's meant so far is that we um, collected donations of furniture and furnished a three-bedroom apartment for them, and we met them at the airport and welcomed them. And it kind of remains to be seen how much of a relationship they're going to want to have with these three nut job American women versus how much they're going to just kind of want to do their own thing. But it was really, really nice to be able to sort of see the end game. You know, these people have been waiting. These are a family from Iraq, um, Kurds from Iraq. They've been waiting for two years to resettle in America. And so we got a little bit of a glimpse of how things can kind of turn out for some of the people that we met in Greece. Wow. What are they, uh, like, how bad are the refugee camps? So I did, in preparation for our conversation, I did reach out today to some people who are on the ground now or are recently back in the last week or so from Greece. Um, I'll give you a couple examples of camps, and then I'll give you a little big picture. Okay. Um, everyone, first of all, is very unsettled because winter is coming. And the, the weather in Greece is actually a lot like the Midwestern U.S., where I'm from. So hot, hot, hot summers, very cold, snowy winters. Um, and, of course, Syrians, for example, are from the desert. So cold to them is not necessarily what cold is to you or you or me. Um, so a lot of the camps are really ill-equipped for winter weather. There is a huge range. Some people are living in these IKEA-style pods that have bunk beds and a bathroom with hot running water and electricity. And then some people are now in month eight or nine of living in essentially small backpacking camping tents. So there's wow. there's that range. A couple of things that I heard today that I thought were really interesting was that um, one camp about three weeks ago, there was a walkout by all of the nonprofits that were working there. There had been a, a peaceful protest staged by refugees about the abysmal living conditions. And this is a camp that doesn't have electricity, that has cold gym-style showers, where in particular women do not feel safe. A lot of women are not comfortable being so exposed in showers like that. You know, these are a lot of women that are maybe a little bit more conservative in their dress, and that just doesn't feel appropriate to them. Um, Listen, I, I, had, I had those showers at Oberlin College when I went to college, and I didn't feel yeah. comfortable, so, you know. Oh, my God. I don't want anyone seeing me in one of those showers. I've never, I've, I'm like a never nude when it comes to showers like that. Right, so, right. 
I totally, I, I feel those women, believe me. Some women literally, by the way, have not taken their hijabs off for months because they never have the privacy where they're only around their immediate family or only around women and they're able to uncover their hair. Um, and so this camp also, just to kind of cherry on top, has snakes and scorpions. Um, and so, you know, parents are worried about snakes and scorpions biting their children in the night. Um, so there was a walkout at that camp. So meantime, babies are being born. There's no Red Cross support. Um, that was just a couple weeks ago. And now apparently the groups are back in, the, the nonprofits are back in the camp. But for a couple weeks, it was completely left, you know, untethered. Um, another group that sounds kind of interesting, or another camp, Oreo Kestro, uh, is run by the Greek military, which has kicked all nonprofits out. So the distribution of supplies is done outside the camp by the gate. Um, and then the inside of the camp is governed by the refugees themselves. Hmm. Um, so some of the camps feel well-organized. There's strong leadership in place. We met an amazing man who's a Seventh-day Adventist from Europe who was one hell of a fundraiser, and by the time he finished a six-month stint at a camp, he had gotten a mobile medical clinic, a mobile dental clinic. He'd set up a school. Like, I mean, you have some real barn burners that come in and decide... I am going to make this place a home. That man called refugees guests. He didn't refer to them as refugees or migrants. He said there are guests, you know, and he treated them. He had that attitude of I'm going to treat them like guests. Um, but a lot of these, a lot of these camps, the tents are totally exposed to the elements. Um, the average rations, I learned this as well today, about a thousand calories a day. Um, and I love to talk about, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a food person. I think about food pretty much all the time. I love to talk about food. So just to give you an example, this is a typical daily food for someone living in a camp. Breakfast is a small croissant, a small orange and a little juice box, one of those 10% juice, you know, sort of sugar water Mm -hmm. boxes. And lunch would be like an airplane-style tin of rice and a big chunk of feta cheese. And then dinner would be a tin of, like, boiled pasta with tomato sauce and a dinner roll. So if you think about that, basically no protein, basically no fresh produce, um, and no dairy except for feta, which is really more kind of salt and dairy byproducts. Right. And then you think about if you have a four-year-old child... And that's what you're feeding them and how they're, let alone your nutritional needs, but how a child's nutritional needs aren't being met by that. And you start to get a real sense of the, of the, the despair and the feelings of inertia. I was going to read you, if you don't mind, it's just three or four sentences long, a description by a volunteer named Uzma who was on the last Carry the Future trip. And she wrote, what I hate the most is the hopelessness. A lot of these folks expected to go back home, but now they're going to be resettled. And starting over is not something they're looking forward to because, like us, they don't want to be middle-aged wondering, what do I do to survive now? And she said that the awful despair is like a dementor, which I thought was such a great, you know, a great analogy. It's sort of like these dementors are just sweeping in and pulling all the joy and hope out of these communities. That's, well, there goes the rest of my pizza that I was going to enjoy. <laughs> I was going to say, way to, way to bring you down. Yeah. You know? I will say, how dare any one of us have it. another slice? I think we consumed a thousand calories in the last ten minutes. That's yeah, that's, that's, that's the tragedy of all this. That's terrible, and we're complaining about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I will tell you the other the other thing I heard is that when you take a step back from that day to day, the wheels are turning. UNHCR is getting blankets to camps, and they're trying to build bathrooms and. It's a trickle. It's a very small percentage of people, but people are being 
resettled in. In fact, I heard from two different people this week that were interpreters for me on the ground and both just bright, cool young men, and both of them have received their country assignments in Europe. So things are happening just at a much slower pace than anyone would have hoped. Okay. Well, that's something good, right? Yeah, and at least, yeah, you know... Yeah, at exactly. Least, so keep that pizza. At, at <laughs> least, like, um, you know, things are looking really good here with our election, and I think everything's going to get better <laughs> yeah. for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sarah, if, yeah, you, if exactly. you... and no matter who's elected, everything's going to be Everything's going to be, be awesome. Much better. It's going to just be perfect. Sarah, if you had the <laughs> ear of the new president, and let's not assume Donald Trump because who knows what the hell goes on in his head when you say, say something to him. But let's say Hillary Clinton, <laughs> for the sake of argument, <laughs> President Clinton. Let's just say for the heck of it. What, yeah. what would you suggest about refugee policy for the U.S., right? What, what, what should be uh, done? Right? They well, were talking last it. night about, you know, you know, mastering the skies and creating a, a no-fly zone in Syria and then, you know, but still being very careful about siphoning in refugees and so on. So what what, what would you right. say? Well, I, I first want to be really honest and say that I'm pretty up to speed on what's happening with refugees, but I am not um, an expert or <laughs> I'm trying to think of a lesser word than expert. I don't know much at all about the, the real political situation on the ground in Syria, you know, aside from the basics. Here's what my pipe dream would be at this point. Thinking, for example, of Aleppo, where hospitals are being targeted, hundreds of thousands of people are starving, you know, and are starved out. They have no food. They're just waiting. They're just sitting there waiting, hungry and scared. I would like to see some sort of serious, immediate, no-fly situation, a big... We're going to harness the gigantic might, for example, of the American military. We seem to be able to summon the funds and the means when we choose to. So let's harness that might, fill a bunch of cargo containers with medical supplies and food and potable water and other essentials, and send a big old convoy in and do whatever it takes to protect that. I would like to see some big multilateral humanitarian, showy, ridiculous, over-the-top efforts. So there's my pipe dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say that that's, you know, remotely possible, and I do not think that that would ever come to pass with either of our um, presidential candidates. I can say that I know that the Refugee Resettlement Advocacy Community, there's a big phrase, is asking for 200,000 refugees to come to the U.S. in fiscal year 2017. And they're asking that 40% of that 200,000 be Syrian, which kind of goes along with the UNHCR's request about what is an equitable breakdown of countries of origin for refugees. Mm -hmm. That's 200,000. That's what refugee advocates would like to see. Obama has made his presidential determination for refugee admissions for fiscal year 2017, and it's 110,000. So that's what he is saying should be done. Now... Clinton will probably hold to that. She has not um, made refugee issues a center point in her campaign. In fact, she's really steered away from them, which is probably politically expedient. But in trying to do a little research for our conversation, I realized how little she has said on this topic except when kind of forced to address it. Um, But she'd probably hold to what Obama has come up with. Um, Trump, on the other hand, obviously might bring that down to zero. And then there's also just a matter of what... Um, kind of funding Congress will approve and so on. I mean, it's not it's not that um, Obama can do the number and everyone will do his will, you know? Right. So, but that, I think, 
I think that 200,000 number sounds great. I mean, by the way, to date, we've settled less than 7,000 Syrians in the U.S. Crazy. Which, wow. I mean, that's a, that number is embarrassing. I mean, that's just embarrassing. And I look at a, a city like Lincoln, where I live, a city of 280,000, a college town. We have jobs. We have apartments. We have friendly Nebraskans ready to help resettle refugees. Everything is in place except the Syrian refugees. And I think, I think thus far, the U.S.'s performance on this topic has been completely embarrassing. And I would really like to see a sea change with the next president, but I'm not feeling super confident about that. Yeah, I could see that. I could. I mean, I, 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 I love your pipe dream. <laughs> it's yeah, great. We may be set, we may be sending American troops <laughs> yeah. to Syria yeah. with the next yeah. president, yeah. Yeah. bringing yeah. people here for a completely for different reason. Sometimes right? at night, like let's just like yeah, like we we can have all this like ridiculous macho military bravado when it serves our purposes. This would be a great time to go balls in, you know, and just be like. Damn it, we're going to take significant and over-the-top action on behalf of the citizens of Aleppo. Yeah. Um, but not not hold my breath on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we would not suggest you do that. Wow. Well, you're you're an incredible person. I mean, I think it's really noble yeah. that you're doing uh-huh. this. I mean, you know, Amit and I drink beer and eat pizza. Yeah, we pretty much feel we terrible criticize about people ourselves for doing after stuff. After talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, we had an army ranger on a few weeks back who kind of was touched by something else. And then he went to go fight. And, uh, you know, mm. the, the parallels between both of your stories is actually pretty similar. It's not um, too similar. Yeah. Uh, it's just, oh, and one thing I want to say, if I, if I can say one more thing, I actually had lunch with a couple friends today and they were sort of teasing me about this story in the, the local newspaper about my work with this arriving family. And I said that for me, <laughs> For me, the pendulum is almost swinging back now, and I find myself getting kind of uncharacteristically cranky and frustrated when people say to me, oh, it's amazing what you're doing, or I'm so impressed with what you're doing. Because the thing is, like, I'm a super sleep-deprived, bitchy mother. (laughs) I've got three giant dogs, one of whom is not yet housebroken, that needs to be walked all day. I work for a nonprofit. My husband works for a nonprofit. We don't have a lot of extra cash laying around. So there's nothing special about what I have chosen to do. I mean, have I prioritized activism? Yes. Can everyone do that? Maybe not. But there are so many ways to get involved, and I think that people almost want to, or or there's some block where they feel like it's more difficult to have an effect than it is, Yeah. and maybe that, that feels safe, or it feels easier, or it feels more comfortable. But in fact, it really takes very little to mail a baby carrier in to carry the future or to wire a PayPal donation to a group you find on Facebook that's based in Europe that's doing some cool work with refugees or to meet a family arriving in your community at the airport with flowers. I mean, these are not, these are not large-scale heroic acts that I'm undertaking. They're just me deciding to do something instead of watch Netflix that night <laughs> or instead of going shopping that Saturday afternoon. Right. So I want to say, like, I'll take the bitchiness out of my tone, but I do want to say, like, all of this is so attainable for anyone that's interested. And um, Facebook is a great starting point to find groups that are out there doing work that kind of is on your node and connects with your personal interest. And there are lots and lots and lots of ways to get involved. 
Don't look at me, Amit. I'm yeah. looking at you. No, I, I, I agree. I, I agree with everything that's been said. Amit just, Amit just, I, I'm just like, Amit yeah. just like dramatically awesome. looked up from yeah. the microphone right at me like, like what you are see? you doing? You see why I wanted her on? See? Um, yeah. Well, I think we, like, one is like, I think, you know, on our Facebook, when we post this, we'll put yes. some of these organizations the where people can volunteer and help out and, um, awesome. you know, see if any of our listeners bite on that. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to provide you kind of a whole gamut of different sized groups and different types of organizations that people could look into. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. I'm going to I'm going to call you tomorrow Sarah and talk about that and okay. we're going to get it up there. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you this for This was amazing to hear everything that you've done and experienced. Oh, my pleasure. I have been really looking forward to this and I'm glad we were we were finally able to make it work. Yes, absolutely. All right, Sarah, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, sounds great. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Have a good evening. Bye. Well, we're losers. <laughs> we're Seriously. Just, wait, what do we do? I blame you. I blame you. I, I, I blame Why'd you. Why'd you let me order pizza tonight when she was going to come on and tell us that like, these people are eating apples? and These and, small slices are like 1,000 calories each, you know? It's brutal. <laughs> it's like... You just ruined, ruined yeah, my night. Right. It's like, right. just ruined my night. Right. What I thought we, we were going to come on and like make fun of people. <laughs> like That was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you should go. Yeah, you I think Jeet. I should. I think. We should send Jeet. <laughs> Matter of fact, we're doing a Kickstarter to send right. Jeet to Greece. Right. Send Jeet to Greece. <laughs> Man, that's a good person. I have it's no, unreal. I have right? no excuse. I mean. It's brutal. It's unreal. I mean, also, I mean, I didn't even think of it that the way, way that the little things that you can do, like the sort of little things. Yeah, you don't sure. have to like totally reform your life, right? You can right. just like do these little things. But most people will not. But maybe no. they will. Man, I don't know. I don't well, know. I mean, I think we'll it's see. important. I feel like a lot of people are just afraid to. You know, like you, you do see these places, these things where you could donate, and you. We we just live in such a world where you always question everything. Because like, I don't think it's real. They're it, not really getting listen, the money. It's the same <laughs> psychological act of walking by the homeless person starving in the street yeah. right next to you. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. You know, yeah. That. Do I want to go out of my way to make what is an a moral and correct gesture to help this person? Right. Um, but in New but York, you, you could go broke right. on every block. Right. Right. Well, yeah, like, but even but then you could always just say, "Well, you could just do the one, right?" I mean, like you know, you don't have to do everybody you to save everybody. Actually. So, but I'm just saying, like, I think that's what's kind of operating. But yeah. you can also snap out of it. So, yeah, that was that was pretty amazing. Yeah, great. All right, so. Um, is that next it? Next week, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be back next week um, with more campaign stuff, which now seems so piddling and oh. useless <laughs> after that conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, then what is the horse race again? Yeah. I know. Um, I yeah. feel like no politics got deep tonight. Right, right. Seriously. Seriously. Man. Yeah. All right. This is No Politics at the Dinner Table, produced by our boy Jeep Baderoy. Uh, we'll see. We'll talk to you next week when i see anybody you know, you know don't i have these tv that. things you, you do but yeah but i it, call them viewers and and we'll yeah. see you and <laughs> see, you're not gonna see shit see. you're gonna listen to this awful voice next week goodbye see you next week